0: Hello and welcome to Rewatch. This is the show about movies we love and movies we haven't seen yet. My name is Seth Scruggs.
1: My name is Zach Long.
0: And in this show, I pick a movie that I like or that I want to rewatch and Zach hasn't seen. And then I make him watch it and then we flip and we do the same thing. So in the first half of this episode, we're going to be talking about a movie that Zach had seen before and I had not, and then we're going to talk about a movie in the second half that I had not seen, or that I had seen, and Zach had not. And the irony about us
1: starting this episode with <laughs> a movie that is even titled, What You're Not Allowed to Talk About from the Movie, yeah, is... So- we're gonna appropriate
0: be, we are going to be breaking the first two rules of fight club today because today's episode is all about david fincher so before we jump into our first movie so zach you picked fight club i and picked I, Fight club and i picked panic room which uh is an interesting choice that we can probably jump into but before we get into that we both seen a lot of David Fincher movies.
1: I think I've seen, I've seen the majority of them at this point. I think we've seen
0: all of the same Fincher movies. Yeah, unless no wait, you haven't seen Mank. I assume you have, I have not, not seen, seen Mank. I say that because I assume that the writing of Citizen Kane is not something that you just felt like sitting down and watching a movie about. Knowing you. Uh, but I, I want to take a second before we jump into the discussion here and just talk about like, why, why do you think that David Fincher is someone that uh, people are interested in that makes movies that interest you that, you know, what I have my reasons and I'm curious about you, like what, what stands out to you about a David Fincher movie?
1: So that, I mean, there's, Different answers for every aspect of the sentence you just led into. (laughs) Um, The last one, uh, what stands out as a David Fincher, I think for the most part is the easiest to answer, Uh, which is probably a little dangerous to say. Uh, To me, what I notice in a lot of David Fincher's work is like usually... Some sort of mystery. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I guess I made a big setup. It's usually a, <laughs> some sort of mystery that revolves around a huge twist at the end. Yeah. Um, not even at the end necessarily, but there's a big twist. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, and this is the spoiler alert for all of David Fincher's, like any any if you have not seen. any movie by David Fincher and care about spoilers. We're
0: we're probably going to mess it up for you.
1: We're probably going to mess it up. There's only a few that we haven't seen that we won't be able to talk about. So heads up, spoiler alert. So in fight club, you have the fact that the, the twist is Tyler Durden is the narrator in gone girl. You have the twist that she's a narcissist and was lying in seven. You have the twist at the end where Brad Pitt's wife's head is in a box. In Zodiac, you have the twist of
0: who the Zodiac killer is. Are you, are you just going through and listing all of them? Are you going to do all of them? Not like, all. Are them. you going to do? Are you going to spoil every David Fincher movie? Surprise.
1: Uh, <laughs> there's not all secret twists.
0: Right in it though. And, so like, and I think it's worth noting that they're not like. M. Night Shyamalan twists where if you know what the twist is, the movie doesn't work. Right. Uh, I think that's a, that's a hallmark of Shyamalan's work where, you know, yeah. If you know the twist for any given Shyamalan movie, it kind of doesn't work after that. Mm -hmm. David Fincher's movies because of the way that they're made do.
1: So seven and gone girl specifically, I watched again very shortly after my first watch like within weeks Mm -hmm. because i just wanted like i i I wanted that oh man moment again Mm -hmm. um but yeah so like panic room which we'll get to later on in the episode um the twist isn't that oh it's revealed that so and so did this or that this person is actually this person the twi- the panic room the twist and panic room is when the tables are flipped
0: right right uh um, who's actually in power who's actually in yeah. control which happens which, which is a a table that gets flipped several times in that movie mm-hmm. uh, Yeah. i i'm sure it's something we'll talk about
1: yeah um so yeah for me it's it's a thriller with twists
0: yep I think that's good. I, one of the things that I, I really love about David Fincher's work is that it's so varied. He, he okay. reminds me a lot. A lot of people compare him to Alfred Hitchcock, um, which I think is a good comparison on multiple levels. The first is, obviously, he's making thrillers. That's what Hitchcock did. That's what, that's what Fincher's doing. That's, that's pretty evident. And they make them very effectively. They make them very quickly. They keep. They just kind of keep moving. But I think also th- Fincher and Hitchcock are not afraid to experiment. And that's what keeps I keep coming back to. And it's part of the reason that I wanted to talk about Fight Club first on this podcast is because you have Fight Club immediately, not immediately, but like directly followed up by Panic Room. And Fight Club is this kind of sprawling movie, not sprawling, but it's a movie with a lot of big ideas and a lot of character twists and revelations and all 200 of these locations, things, 200 locations, something I didn't know. All of, you know, massive movie stars and, you know, all of these things and moving pieces. And then he immediately moves to Panic Room. And makes this really quiet composed, not quiet necessarily, but like contained thriller. Mm -hmm. And it's a very effective thriller. It's very well made, but he's not going, he's not swinging for the fences like he is in Fight Club. He, you know. To go back to the very beginning, he does Alien Three, a movie that he does not remember making. Uh, I don't know. Side note: If you ever get a chance to listen to David Fincher talk about making Alien Three, uh, just look it up. It's, it's one of the best things in the world. Uh, but he immediately followed this. He follows this kind of big budget entrance into movie making with a small crime thriller, with Seven and then moves to Fight Club a movie with a lot of big ideas to Panic Room and then he does he does Benjamin Button and he does Mank and he does Social Network all of these movies are really varied but very much his own in the same way that Hitchcock may make Rope and then follow it up with another you know Strangers on a Train or or then go make Rear Window and kind of bounce around and make these different kinds of movies all very effective, all very well-made. And I I really appreciate that about David Fincher is okay. I just made a movie about the guy who wrote Citizen Kane. Let me go make a serial killer movie. Why not? Mm -hmm. And uh, he's definitely one of the most, I think one of the most interesting directors, even if you don't necessarily enjoy his movies and that kind of the kind of thing that he's into, which is basically people suck. <laughs> uh, even if you're not into that, uh, I think that his his is a career worth watching for for many many reasons. So all that said, you ready to break some rules, Zach? Let's break some rules. All right, let's talk about Fight Club. So, Zach, this was your choice, Fight Club, 1999 movie about toxic masculinity and (laughs) weak men and uh consumerism and multiple personalities and ikea and (laughs) any number of things why is fight club and get maybe give a better synopsis than that like why is this movie one that you want to keep returning to so i i first
1: watched this gosh Two or three years ago. Um, and was fascinated by it. I think I had bought it without seeing it. Something, and then, it's
0: something worth noting that you do very frequently.
1: Yeah. Well, okay. Look, if I can buy it for cheaper than I can rent it, <laughs> <laughs> then I can just sell it. Uh if I didn't like it. Um, but yes, I do that very frequently. Um so I bought it without seeing it and it took me a while to get around to seeing it. And then I watched it and it's so fun is a weird way of putting it. <laughs> awesome. Cause like it's, it's a, it's a dark satire of toxic masculinity and consumerism. Mm-hmm. Cause you've got Edward Norton, who's this white collar paper pusher, uh, who his job is to determine whether or not enough people have been hurt in car crashes to different malfunctions, whether or not it's financially worth recalling those cars or to just settle all the lawsuits. (laughs) So like, There's that take on consumerism. There's his incessant need to fill his apartment with stuff. And then you have the toxic masculinity of, uh, that is attributed to not having a father figure in their life um, or a super pressuring father figure uh, that leads him to develop an alternate personality that starts a fight club has aggressive sex with somebody he barely knows causes him to act out in various ways all set in motion i guess um were sparked by uh his insomnia So with while not being able to sleep, he's developed this personality that he goes into at night. And then eventually he meets the personality. Um, And so it's, it's very, it's fun (laughs) because you have like, you have both sides of the, of everybody, you know, basically who's, has who has the repressed side and a chaotic side. So you get to see you get to see the the conflict between those two where Tyler wants to do something that the narrator doesn't want to uh, because it'll get them in trouble or something. And then you see eventually they become the same person. But that is also when the story shows you hey guess what? They are the same person. Mm-hmm. Um, even though actually at the story it's when they have become it's past the point where they've become the same person and the narrator is trying to come back from being that person
0: reckoning with um, kind of who he is and what he's done
1: mm-hmm. again yeah um, but it's its just fun because like who, who who doesn't like taking shots at consumerism and toxic masculinity like it's <laughs> they're easy shots they're easy shots but they're fun shots
0: I think the thing that really stuck out to me in this first watch was how effective that satire is because uh, I recently watched a, I guess it's a satire that came out in 2021. uh, Don't look up. And I didn't think don't look up was a very effective film and there's many reasons for that. And I don't want to go into them here in this conversation about fight club, but what I, what I loved about fight club was how focused the satire was and how absolutely brutal in its satire. It is so, part of the problem with don't look up is that it's trying to kind of play the field. It's trying to poke fun at too many things. And also can't is kind of pulling its punches a little bit. Whereas fight club pulls no punches. It literally and figuratively it is. I, I texted you multiple times during this movie. Just like, this is brutal. Mm-hmm. It is brutal but it does such a good job at it does such a good job at saying here is the furthest conclusion that we can take it to and it's a logical conclusion and here's just like the full gross underbelly of this thing and yeah like it's it that makes it so effective because as insane as some of the stuff that happens in this movie is because as crazy as some of this stuff is it never feels implausible and it always knows exactly where it's taking its shot it is laser focused and there there there's several like side jokes about other things but it's kind of saying and I don't know, maybe, maybe you can correct me if you think I'm wrong and we can have a conversation about this, but like, it kind of feels like, okay, there's this frustration that men are soft and the world is kind of comfortable. And the, the logical answer would be, well, men gotta be tough. But if we, if we take that to its furthest conclusion, we end up fighting each other in the basement of bars just to feel something. Mm-hmm. So where, and, it, and really, you know, it's so much a movie about belonging and looking for a place to belong. And you know, what is, what is that? Where is that place? And if it's not consumerism and it's not masculinity, where is it? And I don't know that the movie has an answer for that. Um, Other than a testicular cancer support group. (laughs) With meatloaf. With meatloaf, which is, I mean, what what an interesting place for that to try to find this community that this guy who part of the issue of the movie is that he feels emasculated, finds his first real community in the film in a group of emasculated men, like physically emasculated men.
1: Also, to clarify, Meatloaf the singer,
0: not Meatloaf the food.
1: Whenever we refer to Meatloaf in this movie, it is a person.
0: It is the singer of the classic two out of three ain't bad, not Mm -hmm. the delicious food that often has ketchup on it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, because he... And his his whole identity was in being a macho because his character used to be mm-hmm. a wrestler before he had before he got his testicular cancer, which caused him to grow, which the medication mm-hmm. uh, caused him to grow breasts right And so he's the perfect storm of was this? And is now the opposite of this was like the ultimate example of masculinity in society, mm-hmm. and now look like shamed, but like his his kids won't talk to him anymore, right? Because they won't be seen in public with him.
0: I think it's such an effective film, and that it's so direct in what it's trying to say, and so laser focused on what it's trying to do that it lands, like it lands its punches rather than like not being sure of where they're going to land and what's going to happen. And then of course, visually this movie is so gross. (laughs) It is. Yeah. And that's something that I think is interesting in comparison with the next movie we're going to talk about Um, and Fincher's later work. Which is so slick and produced. This movie is just... I mean, there's just some... Like, everything is covered in like a layer of just grime and gunk. And man, it is... It is nasty. Some of the things that happen in this movie. And we get close-ups of some of it. Oh, we get we get real up close and personal with a lot of it. So, Seth, on yeah. your first
1: viewing yeah. because this is when you watched it the first time. Yep. Yeah. Um,
0: what were your thoughts and what stood out to you? So, all of that um I mean, I feel like I walked away with like Fincher knows how to make this, like, knew exactly what he was trying to say. Well, what I find really interesting is kind of the life that this movie's had since 99. So 23 years, almost 23 years. In that the movie is very clearly trying to shine a light on these things. But in a way, like, and Tyler Durden is not the hero of this story. Not not even close. And yet, if you were to talk to some people, they would talk about how great of a character Tyler Durden is. And not great, like, yes, he's a well-written character, but like great in the sense of like, man, Tyler Durden, though. That's a that's a good character. Like like a role model almost. Right, right. And that yeah, this movie was right. We we should we should have a resurrection in masculinity or this this specifically this brand of masculinity. And that's not a that's not a conversation for this podcast, not uh by a long shot, um, because it's way too nuanced for the two of us to talk about on our silly movie podcast. So I'm I don't want to address that and what everything that that's there. That said, I, I fear that like the the message that people get from this movie is like man Tyler Durden though that's a that's a man right there and that's that's so not the point of this of this movie it's so so different. Brad Pitt's performance this is the second episode in a row where I'm just gonna go on a tear about how much I love Brad Pitt. Uh again like Brad Pitt is is and especially at this point in his career like was the like the definite he's the definition of a movie star right like he's good looking and he knows how to pick projects and he knows how to pick directors and he knows what he's doing and and i don't i don't know enough about his career to like try to chart it for you but fight club feels like such a thought through choice in his, on his part where you know seven is very much a movie star kind of role where he's the he's the good guy and there's and that doesn't mean that it's like shallow or mm-hmm. like there's not something for him to do but it is very him in the spotlight he's kind of the main guy Everyone's kind of looking to him to do do the thing, but uh, it, he he's learning. Everyone's seeing things through his eyes. And in Fight Club, he's the villain. I don't, I don't know that he's the antagonist. I think that's the wrong way to put it, but he's definitely a villain and a very vile character. And he is just, I mean, he's gross and hardcore and unhinged, just absolutely unhinged in this movie. Mm -hmm. And it's such a, like, it feels like a very calculated choice on his part to say, I'm going to work with Fincher again because I liked him. I liked what we did together, but I don't like, A logical choice for like coming from a producing standpoint is we'll make Brad Pitt your narrator and put him Mm -hmm. in the center of the frame for the entire movie because he's he's the guy. Everyone loves watching Brad Pitt on screen and I'm guilty of that. I love watching Brad Pitt on screen. But the choice to say no, and I don't know if that's a Fincher, if that's a Pitt choice, if that's maybe it's maybe it was a studio choice, but the choice to say no, let's make him quite possibly the grossest character we can imagine, and he's going to do really disgusting things in this movie. Yep, let's do that. I I think I think it's such an effective choice. I think it's a great choice on his part and on Fincher's part to do that.
1: Yeah. I see, I see it as perfectly, perfectly cast for him. Like it just, it just to me makes sense for him to be Tyler. Right. Reden because yeah, he's gross. Uh, but like the, the movie in its satirical way is saying he's gross, but in a cool way. Right. He and
0: he is like oozing charisma for this entire movie as gross as he is.
1: For that, I think that's why it's perfect for Bro. I agree because yeah, he's gross, but he's so cool, right? And like such a like I I think that's honestly where the the less understanding viewers could be like, oh yeah. This guy's so cool. This is all the stuff he does. It's Brad Pitt. And it's Brad Pitt. So yeah, this guy's awesome. I want to be like him. Right. Even though the movie is saying, hey, no, don't. Please, for the love of all
0: that is good,
1: do Mm -hmm. not. For the love of all this humane and like human. Right. Right. Because like at the end, you've got the snowball effect of everything Tyler Durden stands for. And you have this militia, this anarchist militia that doesn't have names. And the, the rallying cry of them is when one of them dies, when meatloaf dies and they, they feel, they determine that the only way they can have an identity is for dying in the
0: name of mayhem. I, I totally, I totally agree with that. Edward Norton as well. I mean, it's worth touching on him. Uh, man, just a great performance from him and the desperation that he is going through as he sinks further and further into this world. Um, really, really, really great. I think. Um, so I want to I want to turn the tables, so to speak, on you. And so this is your second time seeing it. What what's kind of going through your head as you as you watch it? I mean, the first thing I noticed was um, if
1: Wes Anderson's romantically favorite color is yellow, I feel like David Fincher's is desaturated green (laughs) yeah um i feel like that's worth pointing out um kind of kind of what you said like how gross everything is (laughs) like everything except edward norton's character in general um but even then he starts to get gross Mm -hmm. um just like even down to Marla Helen, Helena Bonham Carter's hair, mm-hmm. it's gross. Everything, everything, except like Edward Norton's boss in the movie
0: is so gross. And he's only gross because he's stale. Or he's only not gross because he's stale, which is the other thing you don't want to be exactly in, in the world.
1: Um, I think the thing I noticed most though is I caught on to the satire of it before uh, uh this time. Uh but the first time I was watching it, I was just like overwhelmed right, right. by everything that's happening. Um and this time I was like, wow, this movie is really funny. Like not necessarily like I'm like bruising a rib. Laughing, but like this movie has really good takes that are ironic and really funny.
0: It's so darkly hilarious that like you find yourself laughing and you don't realize why you're laughing, or even maybe that you were laughing, and you're like, "Oh wow, that's Mm -hmm. okay." I I also caught small details, like
1: I was wondering why the the chemical burn on their hands was shaped that way. And then I realized, I just, I just noticed this time watching that Tyler kisses Edward Norton's hand before dumping it on. And so that I'm guessing the saliva and oils from the kiss is what caused the burn to happen there and not anywhere else.
0: Gotcha. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't notice that. That is, I mean, I, I want to talk about the filmmaking of this movie but also like we spent 10 minutes at the beginning of the show talking about Fincher. He is known for details and Mm -hmm. details like that and repeating takes and getting it right. And um, yeah, there's nothing out of place in this movie at all. Every cut, every moment feels like the right one. Supposedly, there's a Starbucks cup in every shot.
1: <laughs> I don't. I feel like I saw somewhere there wasn't. There's probably at least one in every scene, though. Yeah. It's, to go with the insomnia and.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a very. Psychosis. He, he's such a calculated director in what he's doing. And it, you have to in a movie like this, where. Mm so much of it hinges on the details, like the one that you noticed you, you have to get the details, right? Because in, in the twist where you learn actually Tyler hasn't been real all along. It's been in the narrator's head. It, you've got to, you got to flip things around and you've got to know what's going to happen. You have to have that big picture vision of the movie as a whole as you're making it, and it's very clear, and and I think that's clear in every movie that Fincher has done, but especially here where so much of it hinges on those little details, that it it just he knocks it out of the park. Um, mm. I feel like that's almost reductive and redundant to say because this movie is twenty something years old, and it's been talked about a little bit ad nauseum. But like man, like what a great. <laughs> What an absolutely just phenomenal piece of work that I think really does capture a moment in time of that kind of late 90s anxiety about consumerism and the turn of the century and the 80s and all of that fun stuff that I'm not qualified to talk about.
1: Now that I think of it, that does seem, it does seem to be the perfect culmination of the dark side of the 90s at least Mm -hmm. from uh
0: like the media representation like how it's worth noting that uh we weren't neither of us were very conscious in the 90s
1: right which is why i clarified and said the media representation (laughs) yeah two-year-old me you weren't really developing.
0: Not, you weren't developing yeah. thoughts about the consumerism of the nation in which you lived in. Mm-hmm. Uh, two years old.
1: Yeah, I was. If I was raised with different parents, man, little two-year-old Zachary would have been running around blowing <laughs> stuff up like that, <laughs> <Shaded>. making soap <laughs> like a maniac.
0: Do you have any you kind know, of wrapping up thoughts? on this movie, any stray thoughts that you have that you just really want to get out?
1: Um, while I love this movie and I rated it highly, probably four or four and a half stars out of five. Um, I think this movie is very overrated. Yeah. It does what it does very, very well, but I don't, I, I think it's overrated. I think people hype it up a bit more than it meets, but it is still excellent.
0: Do you, is this one that you could see yourself returning to or Absolutely. after? Okay. And like after another time, you're kind of like, yeah, no. Nah, so,
1: so like this is kind of related to me buying movies without having seen them yet. Um, the way I, determine what movies I own is very nuanced and not at all formulaic it's basically how I feel about the movie if I decide it's worth me owning and this like I this has been in my collection and it's gonna stay there
0: okay cool yeah I'd be interested to return to it again and like I knew the twist going in but I found it effective enough to hold my attention throughout the whole movie. And even found the twist relatively uh, exciting and interesting still. But I have be lost inter- cabin pressure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I'd be very interested to see it again, like a year or two removed from this viewing, and kind of see what I think of it then. All right, we are going to take a quick break, and we will follow up our discussion about Fight Club with David Fincher's follow-up to Fight Club, Panic Room. We'll be right back. Hey, what's up? This is Seth Scruggs, host of Rewatch, that show that you're listening to right now. And if you like this show, there's also a good chance that you would like our YouTube channel. You can find it, Mark SpotsDX Productions, on YouTube. There's a link in our show notes. And over there we have short films and behind the scenes content and a bunch of other stuff that we have planned for the rest of this year. You can go over there and subscribe. That really helps us out and helps other people find our work. And if you like this show and you want to help other people find our work, you can follow the show, give us a review and a rating. And that really helps other people find our work as well. All right, let's get back to the show. And we're back to talk about the 2002 film directed by David Fincher, Panic Room. It stars Jodie Foster and Kristen Stewart, along with Forrest Whitaker, Jarrett Leto and Dwight Yoakam. And it is about... A woman and her daughter trapped in a panic room in New York in the middle of a home invasion and robbery. Uh, and this, this was my choice. So I get to talk about it first, about why I like this movie. We decided that we wanted to do a Fincher episode. That was what started this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> and man, and I, I just... I've watched this relatively recently, like within the last month probably for the first time. Uh, Speaking of buying DVDs without having seen the movie, I bought the special edition DVD of Panic Room at a uh, video store closeout sale. Welcome to the 21st century. Just a note, one of the best designed DVDs I've ever seen. Another thing I really admire about David Fincher is that he really does care about the presentation of the, of his media and the special edition of this movie and special edition of something like uh social network has just an insane amount of bonus features. There's like a full feature length documentary on the pre-production process, the production process and the post-production process of panic room on this DVD Absolutely insane. Just total side note. Not not why I wanted to revisit this movie. I find this movie so effective. It The performances, I, th- I don't think that there's a bad performance in the movie. I mean, maybe Kristen Stewart gives a weaker performance as a 12-year-old, but she's 12. I don't think that there's a bad, absolutely bad performance. Um, I love... How this movie is shot, kind of in contrast to Fight Club, which is what we're talking about—that very grimy, gritty kind of thing. This is a very slickly shot movie, a very um, calculated, very clean, very um, very smooth uh, movie. Down to the fact that there is a entirely CG one take to avoid any sort of camera shake. Uh, A very legendary long take from David Fincher there, uh, similar to the one in fight club that where the camera goes through an entire trash bag um, in a computer generated shot. This is a computer generated shot that shows the intruders attempting to break into the house and uh, the camera travels through the entire house as it does. So uh, supplemented by CG. Uh, But yeah, very slickly shot movie. Uh, Honestly, just a tight contained thriller. There's a, there's a poster on the wall behind me for rear window. So clearly I am a fan of contained thrillers and this movie that is very indebted to Alfred Hitchcock and very, uh, especially rear window in many of its homages to other movies. and uh, yeah, I just I find it such a just just a good time to sit down and kind of be captivated by this world. So I'd seen it before, but you hadn't what what really stuck out to you y- you just watched it yesterday
1: Yeah yeah yeah.
0: yeah. so I, what yeah. so kind of in your really fresh viewing in the movie are you thinking about so before
1: like from the beginning of the movie uh i was half skeptical about how this was going to be engaging (laughs) um only half skeptical because i trust david fincher um but i was like how is he going to how how is he going to make somebody being locked in a Panic room. Interesting. Like the whole point of a panic room is that it's set up to where you don't need to leave. But
0: you're then, just, but then he, you're
1: totally fine until the police show up or But the then he made leave. it
0: very interesting.
1: He made it very interesting. He delivered. He delivered exactly what he set up. Um, I, there were multiple times where I found myself holding my breath. Unintentionally, and it was incredible. There are, it's so, um, a sim kind of similar movie, um, is the thriller Hush. Have you seen Hush, Seth? Yeah, yeah, Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, very similar.
1: Um, where it's somebody, it's a home invasion. Um, and so, like Hush, one of the things I like about this is. For the most part, everything they did made sense. Like, it it wasn't like they were doing the, oh, no, don't go in there, don't go in. Like, everything they did made sense. Some of the things they didn't do didn't quite make sense. Um, like, there were a couple times where I was like, you could very easily have made a phone call because you can see them all arguing in on the bottom floor. So open the door, use their signal, call the police. Right. Other than that,
0: I thought it was amazing. Um, and I want to pause there for a second. Cause I think that your point about the fact that it makes sense is such an underrated thing in a movie. And I think that's why this movie is so deceptively easy is that well yeah you just do the logical thing just make the right call just do that you know of course they would do that because that's the most logical thing to do most of the time that is not how movies are written because Mm -hmm. a lot of people and i'm guilty of this so i'm including myself in this will write a movie and will write what they Wish the character would do, not necessarily what makes the most sense.
1: Or something that would work. Right. Something that would work for the character
0: to do. Right. And this movie, neither of those happen. It is the most logical choice for these characters, given what they know and what they do.
1: The the biggest thing I struggle with is just how... Aggressively horrible Raul was.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. But even then, every every choice that Raul makes, it's like, yeah, Raul will probably yeah. do that. Because yeah. that's the kind of guy that Raul is. Mm-hmm. And it, it works. Every bit of it works. I think another piece that makes it work. And the thing that both on the first time and the second time I, is such a was such a brilliant filmmaking piece of like craft was the fact that for the first 10 minutes of the film, David Fincher just explains the house to you. Mm -hmm. And he does it in a way that makes sense in a way that doesn't feel like um, over the top exposition characters, just rambling, you know, about what it is. They're showing you the house and you're following along so you're seeing all of the the rooms and you understand how the rooms are connected and you understand how okay this person's on the third floor and this person's on the fourth and this is on the first so you understand all of those things so that mm-hmm. when all the chaos of this home invasion starts happening you don't have to think ah, now where was that again oh wait okay so there now it just happens it's just there and you know exactly what's going on.
1: Well, and it fits it fits perfectly narratively because yeah, you can have them be buying a house, but that can even feel shoehorned in, but like they're still new in the house, and right. the people who are breaking in have connections to the previous owner. Mm-hmm.
0: And it it feels logical that this woman going through a divorce is going to be there that mm -hmm. she, she's lost her marriage. She doesn't want to lose her daughter that, Mm -hmm. you know, all of these choices that she's making make perfect sense. And the narrative choices, as far as like what the audience is shown make total sense. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And yet that's like, I, I don't, I feel like I can't, overstate this that is one of the hardest things to do in filmmaking Mm -hmm. the fact that david fincher so effectively lays out the place and the people and their choices and it makes so much sense is such a credit to him and his writer
1: the line between setting up the world and setting up the story. And what is just another word for both of those things, but co- carries the connotation of doing it poorly, is exposition. Right. So, like, technically, setting up the world and setting up the story is exposition. That is how that is the definition of literally the definition. Yeah, of exposition. Um, but exposition comes off as a bad word because so often you can say oh hey that character is there for exposition oh hey this conversation was exposition and like yeah the first scene when they're being when they're with the realtor that character that scene is there for exposition but it fits so naturally in the world that it's you you don't worry about it
0: if you listen to a lot of stuff about movies or you read stuff about movies, there's a good chance you've heard the phrase show, don't tell. And the idea of show, don't tell is that rather than having a character stand there and say, so-and-so is my father and they do this for a living, you know, it to say like, John is my dad and he's a doctor that's telling, but to show a guy coming out of an ER in scrubs and have this kid run up and yell dad and give him a hug that's showing. Mm -hmm. Okay. We know that visually he's a doctor or a nurse or something. We get the idea. And this kid is his dad or is his son. And that's what Fincher's doing in the first part of this movie for the first roughly 10 to 15 minutes. He says, he shows, okay, here's the house and we're going to be in this house. And there are things that are spoken exposition about the house, right? Like, you know, what there's always a spoken line every now and then, you know, when the guy says, this is all of the the money that is here, there's money in the panic room or there, you know, Oh, I didn't realize you were so, so-and-so's wife. Th- those are spoken lines of exposition, but all of those moments are imbued with such subtext, visual subtext, even that even the spoken lines, even the, told, not shown lines of exposition work Mm -hmm. visually in the film. And again, another thing that is so much harder to do than it seems.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, and so you can easily draw out exposition naturally, right? Um, even in conversation. So in the example of the realtor asking, uh, Jodie Foster's character about her husband, he asks her what she does. Like when, when he's asking right. her what she does, because he's like, how does this single mom have the money to even look at a place like this? Right. And then it comes out, oh, hey, I'm actually going back to school, but my estranged husband is a pharmaceutical executive. And so you're like, oh, hey, their marriage isn't great, which can be inferred by the fact that dad is into there looking at the house with them or he's very busy.
0: But you learn something else in his response other than just the husband's name. You learn the husband's name there and you Mm -hmm. learn what he does. Mm -hmm. But then you learn... but. Aside from that, you also learn. Oh, this guy's a big deal. This mm-hmm. guy had, this guy had heard of him before. Yeah. So it was. It isn't just that he's a guy. It's that oh, he's important, and you learn that in the response, which is a brilliant uh, moment. From checking my notes here, David Cap, the uh, screenwriter of this film. And since I brought up the screenwriter, there's something else I wanted to talk about here that I find really interesting that we didn't get to touch on in our earlier conversation about Fincher and his movies. David Fincher does not write his own movies, um, which is increasingly uncommon, I think maybe the closest thing is Mank. He His dad wrote the screenplay and passed away. And so he did some touch-ups maybe on the screenplay. And I'm so impressed with the way that Fincher will make a movie his own, no matter if he wrote it or not. Again, another comparison to Hitchcock, I think is apt here, where Hitchcock didn't write any of his own movies. And yet, these movies that he made are distinctively his own. Just very, very distinctively. That's a Hitchcock movie. And I think the same which is true about Fincher. Fincher
1: is very impressive, especially considering, like, I guess the most impressive thing in that regard to uh, him not writing but directing it and making it his own is The Social Network, mm-hmm. which was written by Aaron Sorkin who is a powerhouse screenwriter and powerful person in the movie business. So the fact that Fincher could take a Sorkin script and still have it be a Fincher movie. So distinctively his own is so incredible. It's like, especially because comparing it to the stuff Sorkin's written and directed other things uh, Sorkin's written that other people have directed,
0: which are typically better than the things that Sorkin himself directs. Yeah. Just to- um,
1: and I like, and to th- all that, to the extent that I think David Fincher of it, at least of feature films, I can't say specifically on shows and all that because I've not watched all of those. Like of the movies that Sorkin has written, I think David Fincher is the best director of Sorkin.
0: I I agree. I agree entirely. And this is not a social network podcast um, as much as, (laughs) as much as uh, we could probably do a 15 part (laughs) series on that, on that movie. My wife likes to make fun of me for how much I love that movie. But I, I do think you're right. I think that's a testament to Fincher's work. And I think it's a testament that a movie like Panic Room so which is so unique in his filmography coming right after Fight Club this movie with these huge ideas, you've Panic Room which is a very, I mean it people like to say crowd-pleasing thriller like it's a like it's a bad word. But Panic Room is a crowd-pleasing thriller. It is it is incredibly effective at what it does. It meets all sorts of expectations. It it's not trying. You know, it's got a good family story at the heart of it. Like it's got a a good family dynamic, and it's not trying to say big grandiose things about the world. That's not its goal. It's not what it's trying to do. But it's effective at what it is trying to do. And I. Yeah. Can't recommend it enough.
1: Was there anything that jumped out at you on this rewatch that you didn't catch the first time? Didn't appreciate the first time?
0: Um, I think just how brutal Raul is and how the power dynamics shift over the course of the movie um, where you get you get the feeling, Oh, is Jared Leto in charge? No wait, Forrest Whitaker's in charge, which those two are my favorite performances in the movie. Um, just as a side note, Jared Leto's just absolutely unhinged wacko performance. Whatever he's doing is, I, I love it. And Forrest Whitaker's extremely like interior and, um, soft hearted but like menacing performance that he's doing um in the moment where he picks up kristen stewart to carry her over the glass even though he's also like threatening her life Mm -hmm. is just i mean I, i thought that was that was a beautiful moment all that to say but then ultimately seeing how Dwight Yoakum's Raul is actually in charge. And what he's doing that's causing this mass chaos and the the goals for why they're doing what they're doing. And I that that really stuck out with me, the way that the the power shifts throughout the movie. Well, I think that that wraps us up for this episode of Rewatch. Zach where can people find you on the internet they can find me
1: on Letterboxd at Zachary Vaughn and Instagram at Zachary is thinking
0: yep and you can find me on Letterboxd and on Instagram at Seth Scruggs uh, there'll be links to that in the show notes also in the show notes is a link to the Mark Spots the YouTube channel uh, you should check that out and subscribe, that really helps us out. Uh, make sure you also follow Mark CX Productions on Instagram so you can see all the things that we're doing. We had a f- couple of things in the works that we're really excited about, and we hope you'll check it out.
1: 2022 is going to be a big year.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And next week, we're going more into the deep end, more into the dark stuff. Uh, and I'm looking forward to it. Zach, thank you. See ya. See ya, sir.